morning. I'll be reading scripture this morning. Uh, so this comes from Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 10. It's Isaiah 58, verses 1 to 10. This is under the heading of true fasting. Cry out loudly. Don't hold back. Maybe you can hear me a little better now. Cry out loudly. Don't hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways. Like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the injustice of their God. Sorry, the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted, but you, sorry, but you have not seen? We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. Look you, sorry, look you, do as you please on the day of the fast and oppress all of all your workers. You fast with contention and strife to strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to have your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this, a day for the person to deny himself, to bow his head like, an, like a reed, and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Will you call this a fast? and a day acceptable to the Lord. Isn't the fast I choose to break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke? It is not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and to ignore your own flesh and blood. Then your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be with you, your rear guard. All that time when you call the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke from those around you, and finger pointing and malicious speaking, and if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the affected one, then your light will shine in the darkness and your light, sorry, and your night will be like the noonday. This is the word of the Lord. Persuasive technology is just sort of design intentionally applied to the extreme where we really want to modify someone's behavior. We want them to take this action. We want them to keep doing this with their finger. You pull down and you refresh, it's gonna be a new thing at the top. Pull down and refresh again, it's new. Every single time, which in psychology, we call a positive intermittent reinforcement. So you don't know when you're gonna get it, and you don't know if you're gonna get something, which operates just like the slot machines in Vegas. It's not enough that you use the product consciously. I wanna dig down deeper into the brainstem and implant inside of you an unconscious habit so that you are being programmed at a deeper level. You don't even realize it. Every time you, you see it there on the counter and you just look at it, 
and you know if you reach over, it just it just might have something for you. And so you play that slot machine to see what you got, right? That's not by accident. That's a design tech. So uh, for those of you who haven't seen that movie, it's called Social Dilemma. And uh, if you haven't seen it, I encourage you to do so. And if you have children, I uh, implore you to do so, because I think uh, it really has uh, very good points of, of what social media is doing to us and how it tries to manipulate us. So yeah, if you have the time, uh, I encourage you to watch it. So this past summer, as, as you know, many of you know, I went to Banff on my family vacation, and, and we took a lot of pictures and then started to post them on Instagram and Facebook and all that. And you know, I have it connected because I'm lazy. I don't want to post on different sites and all this, so I just have it all connected, right? So if I just post on Instagram, it just goes out to the world, right? And everyone can see it, right? And so that's what I do. At the end of each day, after a long day of sightseeing and all the pictures I've taken, I would look through them and see the ones that I think are nice, and then you know, you, you get those, you put them in, and then you, you share, right? And then as it happens, you start getting dings and notifications saying, oh, this person liked it, this person liked it, this person commented, blah, 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 right, and so on and so forth. And uh, after a week of doing this, I realized that I would check to see how many people liked my pictures. Like, I don't really care. I'm not doing it because I care about how many people will like my pictures or how many followers I have. Like, I don't, I don't care about that stuff. But even still, because I was doing it for about a week, I would just be like, oh, I wonder who liked my pictures. It's like, why? I don't even care. But I did start caring and, and seeing who commented. And then, you know, you feel bad if you don't comment back, right? So you got to reply. And it just, just sucks you in, sucks you in, right? Just... When I thought I was out, they pull me back in. This desire to be liked, to get that heart or the thumb thing on your phone is no joke. And every time we get a like on social media, it triggers the part of our brain that releases dopamine, which can lead to addictive behavior. And we care so much about what others will think of us, we jump through hoops to make sure they have a good impression of us. This is how companies like Facebook and Instagram have sold us on staying online and keeping our attention. It's with that like button or with that tag, when someone tags you, you have to look, right? If someone tags you on a picture, there's no way you're not going to look. On a side note, did you know that this positive intermittent reinforcement is why those who are in abusive relationships stay in those uh, relationships? This is a manipulation tactic that creates a bond with their abusers that they become addicted to their abusers. And this is the same tactic that social media uses against us. So there's a lot of power in being liked and receiving that positive reinforcement from others. That's why I dress up on Sundays and I don't wear tracksuits. Not that I have any tracksuits, but you know. And in the same way, you can see why the Pharisees were so concerned with how they were perceived by others. We see Jesus speaking against this kind of behavior, worrying about what others think about them. People acting and behaving in ways because they care so much about what others thought about them. 
Jesus was critical with religious leaders and authorities who used religion as a way to boost their social status and self-worth. In Matthew 6, Jesus gives three different areas that the Pharisees were using using for their own selfish gain. Giving to the poor, prayer, and fasting. Matthew uh, chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And he says, so don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Verse 5, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Or maybe now it would be like a a Facebook Live, whatever it's called, Live, is that what it's called? Or a story? One of those, right? And verse 16, when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show show others they are fasting. In these sections, Jesus speaks against the Pharisees and the religious leaders who are doing good things, like giving to the poor and praying, for all the wrong reasons. All of these things are good in and of themselves, but was used for the wrong reasons. Like when you give to the needy, don't blow your trumpets and call everyone around you so that they can see how good you are. It's like someone who I saw on Facebook the other day, they posted that they were donating blood. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I have zero problems with someone posting that they're donating blood because you know why they're doing it, because they want to encourage others to do so. So very pragmatic, very, you know, uh, honoring and, and, and caring for the other. But at the same time, he is projecting uh, a perception of who he is to the world. He wants others to see that he is, you know, look, I give blood like me. On Facebook. No, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure this person does it for real good reasons, and it's not for him to uh, get any social cred. But if we do get some social cred, why not, right? So the people of Israel in Isaiah chapter 58 are in a similar situation. In many ways, at first glance, the people seem to be doing what any faithful person would do. The people of Israel are seeking God day after day. They want to know God's ways. They want to obey God and do what is right. They try to follow all of his commandments. And not only that, they ask God for just decisions and ask God to come and be with them. They pray, they fast, and humble themselves before God. And because that is what a faithful follower would do. I mean, if you were to paint a picture of a good, faithful Christian... Isn't this what you would want to see happening? Yet listen to what God says through Isaiah, verse 1. Shout it out loud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Here we see God speaking through Isaiah with a wake-up call. He says, Shout it out aloud. Anytime there's something about raising your voice, blow the trumpet, behold, words like that are saying, come, pay attention. This is important. He says, declare to my people their rebellion and their sins. Are these people worshiping other gods again? Are they breaking uh, the Ten Commandments, following Baal? Listen to what their rebellion and sin is here. Verse 2. 
For day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of his God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. And then they say, why have we fasted? And you have not seen it. Why have we humbled ourselves and you don't even notice, God? God, why haven't you seen our fasts? I posted it on Facebook and then shared it on Instagram. Why haven't you noticed my humbling? I've shared it with the whole world. And so many of my friends liked my posts and have reshared and retweeted. I still remember the ice bucket challenge. I don't know if you remember that those days. And yes, I know a lot of good came out of it. I know there was a lot of raised awareness and people raised a lot of money. But at the same time, I know there were a lot of people who were just doing it for the ice bucket challenge. Did they donate money afterwards? Did they, and then they would, you know, obviously, uh, what's, what's it called? Nominate someone to do it, right? But I always wonder, why are they doing this? Are they doing it for, for ALS? Or are they doing it for their own glory? Or because it was the cool thing to do? Very cool, yeah. For the past six weeks, we have been preaching uh, a series called Uncluttered. We have, re- we have examined how we can unclutter our lives and go and give space for God as we fast from things in our lives that have this hold on us. And I think it's a good thing. Yet fest- fasting or any other forms of devotion that are good can be done for all the wrong reasons. Listen to what God says was the problem. Verse 3, and this is the message version. Well, here's why. Here's why I'm not hearing your fasts and your, or noticing your fasts. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. Do you think this is the kind of fast day I'm after? A day to show off your humility? To put on a pious long face and parade around solemnly in black? Do you call that fasting? A fast day that I, God, would like? The people here were fasting not because they were turning over their addictions or unhealthy attachments to God. They were fasting as a way to gain something for themselves. They fasted without any intention of repentance or desire for God to change them, but to live as they wanted. They fasted as a way to appease God, hoping that if they fasted, God will give them good things in return. We see this because even though they fasted, they exploited their workers. They fasted and yet they were fighting and were violent with one another. They fasted and yet were showing off their fasting by making it obvious that they were fasting. It's like a story I heard about a, a young adult who, was, who used to come to our church and I met with him. And he shared how he was struggling because he was having a hard time at his work. He was an immigrant and, uh, and he, he needed a job because with that job would help him get his PR status. But he was working at a small business, and and I know it's challenging as a small business owner. And this owner, though, went to church, you know, tried to live as a good Christian, and even closed their stores on Sundays. Yet, they treated their workers like slaves. Long, unrealistic hours, 
low pay, no benefits, etc. Listen to what God says is considered, considered to him a true fast. Verse 6, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? The kind of fast that God cares about? Now, let me, no, let me rephrase that. Not what he cares about, but look at what it says in verse 6. The kind of fast that God has chosen is, is to loosen the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to break every yoke, not some yoke, every yoke. The kind, of, uh, the kind of fast that God has chosen for us is not for us to choose to fast from what we think we can give up for a little time, but rather a kind of fast that will lose the chains of injustice and oppression. It is, it is not us thinking through, what should I fast from because I have some unhealthy attachments or relationships with that thing, although I think that is important for us to do. But God says, you don't even have to worry about what you have to fast from. Because I've already chosen it for you. I've chosen the fast that you should do. And the fast that I have chosen for you is not just abstaining from something that will inconvenience your life, but rather to loose the chains of injustice, to break every yoke. But God, that's just too hard and impossible for me. I'm sorry, God, like, that doesn't work for me right now. Can't I just give up chocolate for Lent? Well, if not chocolate, maybe I'll, I'll give up shopping. I'll, I'll give up drinking or, or social media or my phone. And I think we do. We really do need to give up our phones because we're so addicted to that, right? Sure, do that. And if we have unhealthy relationships with those things, fasting can give space for God to really change us, to heal us from these uh, dependencies. But we can't stop there. God doesn't want us to just give up social media. He wants us to break every yoke of oppression. Worshiping God without social justice is rebellion. Worshiping God without social justice is sin. Not because I said it. It's right there. That's what God said. Listen, you are in rebellion. You are in sin. And this is why the early church during Lent would not only fast, but they would also couple that fasting with almsgiving. And almsgiving just means giving you know, to the poor, giving money and food to the poor. But one of the ironic, or what I find to be, for me to be a little bit amusing, is that in the Didache, which is like the early kind of um, spiritual book on fasting, and there, there were different things on prayer and that kind of stuff. And, one, and in it, it speaks about fasting and what Christians should do. And it says Christians shouldn't be like these hypocrites that, you know, Jesus was talking about, who fasted and, you know, showed off their fasting. And they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. But because we don't want to be like these hypocrites, you know what we're going to do? We're going to fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. 
Isn't that? <laughs> to me, all they did was replace one religious uh, idea with just another. Not even. They just changed the date. <laughs> We're not going to be like the hypocrites. We're just going to do it on a different date. The kind of fast that God has chosen for us is for us to be willing to let go of our current lifestyle, even if it means giving up our positions of power and affluence, so that those who are oppressed by our current system that we benefit off of, even at the cost of our own expense, would be free to live as our fellow brothers and sisters. Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? This flesh and blood translation doesn't do justice. Flesh and blood sounds like, you know, my family. Of course, I'm not going to turn away from my family. This, but this flesh and blood here, the more accurate translation is everyone. To not turn away from everyone. And if I'm being honest, I'm not sure if I'm ready for that kind of fast. I'm not sure if I would want to give up my comfortable North American life. I'm not sure if I want to pay more than a dollar for my bananas, more than a few dollars for my coffee, or nor do I want my dollaramas to keep raising their prices. Yet this kind of fast is the call Jesus has for us to take up our cross and follow him. It is a call from Christ for us to recognize that the empire we have built for ourselves is a lie. That we do not find our worth and value in how many likes we get, in how many people follow us, or how much money we have in the bank. God has come in Jesus Christ to show us a new way of being human, a new created order where those who are oppressed by our economic and social system are to be freed, where those who are oppressed by guilt, shame, substance abuse, and pain are healed. We as the church, the body of Christ, the family of God, can love one another as brothers and sisters in spite of all of our differences because Jesus is Lord. This is the kind of fast that God calls us to, to do, a fast or death that leads to life. And this is what we call as the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is not just so that people can come to church and become better people, but the good news of Jesus is the freedom of every oppressive chain or dominion. It is not only, not, not only does it include the freedom from the power of sin in our personal lives and our moral lives, but for all of creation. This was the mission of Jesus. This is the good news. And this is why when Jesus declared his mission, he read this from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free. To proclaim the year of, Lord's, of the Lord's favor. This was the mission of Jesus. In 1858, there was a woman named Rambadai Dongre. I, I don't know if I've pronounced that right. And she was born in India. She was taught Sanskrit 
by her father, even though it was not something that uh, was part of the normal uh, convention. This was kind of taboo. But they, and they also lived as pilgrims, uh, reading Sanskrit manuscripts, and at the age of uh, 20 years old, became the first Indian woman to be granted the title Pandita, which means learned master. At 22, she was married and came across a Bengali translation of Luke's gospel. And by age 25, she was convinced and moved by the Sisters of the Cross who care for fallen women. And she's never seen that kind of kindness extended for women of similar situations in India. And moved by a faith that gives hope to the vulnerable, she decided to get baptized. And in 1889, while still studying in the States, she felt God was calling her to provide and care for the oppressed women in her own country. So, uh, and then what she did was she opened up a, a mission, a, a home, where she rescued thousands of outcast children, child widows, orphans, and other destitute women, and brought them to the shelter of her mission called Mutki, Muti. And by 1900, there were over 1,500 residents living in this Muti, Mut, Mukti, Mukti mission. The Pandinda Rambadai Mukti Mission is still active today. Over 100 years, still going strong. And this is what she says. She says, one thing I knew by this time is that I needed Christ and not merely his religion. The Bible says that God does not wait for me to merit his love, but heaps it upon me without my deserving it. It says also that there is neither male nor female in Christ. How good, how indescribably good. What good news for me, a woman, a woman born in India among Brahmins who, who hold out no hope for me and the like of me. The Bible declares that Christ did not reserve this great salvation for a particular caste or sex. One of the areas that we as the leadership recognized, um, you know, as part of um, this whole, you know, Koli model, changing uh, how we do ministry, and we were looking at what are the next steps and what do we need to do? And we, after discerning and thinking it through, one of the th thoughts was we need to hire someone who will help us get out of the doors. We're great at this worship stuff, you know, and we're pretty good at the community life stuff. But where we need help is for our people to be in this community. And so we said, you know, and I remember, the, and some of you were part of this, obviously, with us as we were trying to craft Abby's uh, uh, job description and even her title, right? And we landed on a title, which is Missional Discipleship. And it's not the greatest title. It just doesn't kind of flow off well, and it just seems a little off a little bit. But at the same time, we really felt that that was important. Because mission and discipleship aren't something separate. They're actually one and the same thing. So we really wanted to highlight, if we want to be disciples, we're being missional. It's not always about us just coming in, getting fed, and then leaving feeling good about ourselves. It's about us gathering together as the people of God, of different backgrounds and social economic uh, 
um, levels or standards, all coming together, united, being fed by Christ so that now we could be the bread to the world. And, you know, another question we asked ourselves is, like, would it matter if Spring Garden moved? If Spring Garden left this area, would anyone even notice that we left? Like, I think that's a great question for us to reflect on and think through. Because if no one noticed that we left, then I think we're not being the church. So join us. We're, we're in this together. It's not actually uh, Abby's job for this to happen, right? We hired Abby because we recognize that's an important role, but it's not her job to get us out there. We're partnering with her. We're, working, we're saying together as a church that this is important and we want to get out and be the people of God. So, yeah, let's do this together. And ask yourself how you can do, what you can do to be part in the sharing of the good news of Jesus. That not only frees people from their sins, but also from every oppression. Join me in prayer. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with, the, with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? This is the kind of fast I have chosen. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, blaming victims, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your light and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide your ways. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls. Restorer of streets with dwellings. May it be so in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.